0: Again, our text uh, will be Colossians. Uh, We're going to pick back up with our study. We're just doing a a consecutive exposition of this letter that Paul writes to a church in Colossae. I think in the Pew Bible, that uh, black Pew Bible, you can find our text, uh, Colossians 2, on page 984. Some of you know uh, we were away on vacation, and Krista still is, uh, with some of our kids. And uh, we've had some chances, some opportunities to, uh, to do some nostalgia, be, being reunited with family and familiar places on vacation. But when it comes to history, whether it's personal history or American history or Western civilization, whatever it may be, uh, see if you might agree with me uh, that there are, there are times that uh, we have a way of kind of romanticizing uh, a bygone era, right? Uh, we 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 whether it's 40 years ago or 400 years ago, uh, we say things like that was a that was a good time that was a, that was a better time, and uh, people were good then and they had less problems. Sometimes you even say and you hear people say. Well, if we could just get back to a time in this country or that culture or this institution, if we could just get back to an earlier time, then it would be, it would be pure and, and we would have, uh, have power. And People even do that with Christian history, the church. They say, oh, well, if we could just travel back to, you know, the New Testament church, if we could just be a, a pure church, a simple church with no, no error or no problems, and, and then we would have, you know, a, a one, no, no. I don't know how to say this. I needed to be reminded. I, you need to be reminded that it doesn't matter. There have always been problems. There have always been threats. There's always been broken people. Many times we think that we are way worse than a different era or a different people group. Or, or as a matter of fact, sometimes we have no business saying or thinking this, that we're better than another era or group of people. And although Paul's tone here in this letter is very uh, complimentary and it's commending to them, there is no doubt that when you read this epistle, you see the concerns that he has for this particular local church and region there. He's concerned about the ways that their faith has been influenced uh, by others that uh, don't have Christ in view, that don't have the Bible open Paul, in his wisdom and discernment, sensed, even at a distance, that something was wrong with the church in Colossae. It's kind of like that something's wrong when you step into a minivan, right? You know, sometimes you know that. I, I don't know where it's coming from, but there must be some spoiling food or or drink, or there's water somewhere, or there's some sneakers buried under some bench seat in the back there. You, you know the, the minivan smell, right? It's the exact antithesis of the new car smell right that's the hardest to replicate but we know that's yeah it's another way of maybe making this analogy I thought of it this week in my hometown Uh, I was in uh, middle school and high school I was in marching band and uh, I I played in the brass and I remember Dr. Bryant who was our uh, symphonic band director Uh, the guy I don't know he was just masterful in his ability to hear anything that was even so slightly off and he would stop in the middle of rehearsal and he would say you guys over there. He would point to the trumpet section and he would go down and he would say just one at a time, you play this, you play this, you play this in front of everybody. And uh, no, that's that's sharp. You're, 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 you're the one. You need to fix that and then we're going to pick back up and we're going to keep on going. I almost feel as though Paul is like that masterful conductor or that, that skilled mother who walks into a, a minivan or uh, you sense that something you hear that something is not quite right the mistake for the colossians the the believers in this church it may have been subtle but the trajectory that paul is saying the direction that that is heading is dangerous if not detrimental altogether you know the apostle paul is not going to just take a a frontal uh, negative attack it's it's more it's even more in the way that he states things and reminds them of things. You get this clear picture that they, the Colossians, have been drawn away from fully trusting Christ as the all-sufficient one, that he is complete, that he is, that he is, the, he is the answer, the comprehensive answer to their needs. So listen in the text this week. Hear what he's saying and what he's not saying, but But may uh, we have wisdom. Let me invite you to stand in deference to God's word as we read this portion. We'll pick up in verse 16 through the end of the chapter. Hear this. This is the word of God. Verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, asceticism, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And then into verse 1 of the next chapter, if then you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing. You may be seated. Uh, Father, we are blessed. Uh, We are grateful to have this gift, which is your inspired self-revelation in our hands, in our own language. Would you forgive us for neglecting it at times? Enable us to have uh, ears that are tuned that are dialed in to hear and hearts that are are, are ready to sing in response with gratitude to your uh, amazing grace. May it uh, may it seem and sound uh, amazing to us by the power of your spirit. Through Jesus we ask. Amen. Many of you are probably like me to some extent you love a, a clever phrase. It's it's even what characterizes good comedy, right? There's nothing profound. It's just Funny to observe things in human nature and experience. One of those phrases, uh, I was talking with Josiah yesterday in the airport. You see if you can fill it out. Blank is the mother of ingenuity. What is blank is the mother of ingenuity. I hear someone whispering the answer. You can say it out loud. Say it loud. Necessity. Thank you. Necessity is... The mother to ingenuity. Well, then let me try one of my own. Blank is the mother of discontent. What gives birth to discontent? Fill in the blank. What is it? Could be. It right, could be a lot of right answers, but I'll tell you what mine is here in a second. Go ahead. What is the mother of discontent? Comparison. Whoo, thank you. That's the one. Comparison is the mother of discontent. We, we have a way of comparing ourselves with people in that bygone era in the past, like I mentioned earlier, but we also have a way of comparing ourselves in the present. Oh, but you already knew that, right? There's that, there's that avenue that makes it even easier. At any point, you can get in touch with anyone, wherever they are, doing whatever there is, and you don't have to guess, because they posted it and posted it and posted it, and posted it in social media, makes comparison really, 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 really easy. You know about this, and you know how the game works, Right? With comparison, we think that we are better than others or we assume that uh, they are better than us. And to engage in that, to pour energy and time, uh, is a fool's errand. It's a fruitless endeavor that we step in time and time again like, well, I won't go there. Some of you have been caught in the comparison game. Maybe you are at this very moment. You already know it. You're you're familiar with why and how it is disappointing. It's dissatisfying. It's just disruptive and distracting. So there's three questions that I want us to consider, and I'm not really going to go in this precise order. I'll just kind of weave in and out of these topics. The first one is, what is the shadow that he's speaking of here, Paul? What is the irony that he would have us see? And then who or what is the substance? There's, there's two warnings that come right out of the gates in the opening verses of this, our, our text, this portion. Basically, if you were to summarize these two questions and these two warnings, it's this. Uh, don't be motivated by other people's opinions. Well, that's easier said than done. But, but here he says it pretty explicitly. Uh, verse 16, therefore, uh, don't, don't let others pass judgment on you. And he's saying that in light of, therefore, not not in light of the voices as much as in light of all that he said about the person and work of Jesus in the prior verses. Go and read those yourself. Now, he's saying, uh, don't let them pass judgment on you. And by the way, when people pass judgment, that's a two-way street, right? So he's saying, as much as you don't want to be nor need to be sized up upon this basis and these grounds, you too don't need to be going and doing that very thing against and for others, Verse 18, he goes on to also say, don't let anyone uh, write you off or disqualify you. And and in these verses, he is just going back to an earlier warning that he had in chapter 2, verse 8. Look with me, if you would, just a little bit higher up. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. This is where he's going to elaborate on that warning. He's going to illustrate it. And unlike other letters, we've said this in other times, unlike other letters, epistles that Paul has written, where it's very clear in uh, Galatians, for instance, we know who he has in view. We know what the the false teaching, the heresy is that's already infiltrated that uh, that early uh, New Testament church. That, that we don't know, we don't, we don't have to know, obviously, they didn't tell us. And, uh, and scholars and church historians can take different uh, guesses as to what it might be. But if you had to summarize some of it, it would be uh, heresies that revolve around these three things. Legalism, mysticism, uh, and asceticism. In other words, they are, they are hoisting on others and, 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 and comparing in such a way that says, unless you have these rules... Unless you can say you have uh, had this spiritual experience, unless you have followed in this particular uh, way with these disciplines, uh, you really can't please God. And and, and frankly, you're not going to experience the full and free Christian life unless you have this. They're commending both biblical and unbiblical or extra-biblical practices. Some of them may have been altogether practical. They may have been tremendously helpful to, um, you know, to the, the inner workings of their life. But if, and it's not if, it's, it's when, for him, when those things obstruct or put any form of obstacle in front of the pure and simple gospel, you're obscuring the, the real fountain, the only fountain of fullness and freedom. Now the biblical ones here that are, are some of them are, are listed in verse 17 or even beginning verse 16, there are mention of a Sabbath or, or rules, practices that dealt with uh, dietary law or ceremonial uh, practices and law. That's in verse 16 and verse 17. And there are places in, uh, in, the, in the old covenant in the Hebrew Bible, like Leviticus uh, chapter 11 and uh, Numbers chapter 10, you can go and read those where you'll see where God is saying to his people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you are the chosen people, and to set you apart, uh, you know, this is how I want you to behave and live, and, and these are the dietary restrictions that you need to understand, to understand what cleanliness is about. And they, they, were, they were instruments, They were they were needed to understand that there is a distinction between them and others, and between them and a holy God. But that was not and is not the substance. Those were not permanent laws. Unlike, I said earlier, the Ten Commandments, which are fixed, these are designed to illustrate what devotion to a holy God looks like until, until the reality came into view, who is Christ. Perhaps that's where the saying is in verse 21 of our text here. Do not touch, do not handle, do not uh, taste. Following in the Jewish tradition, maybe some of the believers in Colossae. In other words, terms and conditions have changed. Sometimes we like that, sometimes we hate that. Terms and conditions have changed. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus himself, as the gospel writers say in Mark 7, you can read it. Jesus says, clearly, all food is now clean." It used to be that some were unclean and unpure in certain practices. And Jesus is saying, now all food is clean. What is corrupting, what's the problem, isn't what you put into your mouth. It's what's in your... Okay, we can participate again. Uh, It's in your heart. That's what causes problems and corruptions. The human heart... One commentator put it well: Dietary restrictions were never intended to prevent an impure life. Think about that. Why? This New Testament writer scholar says the human heart is too persistently rebellious to be tamed by food, or something far more. Because something far more radical is needed. Friends, the, the radical answer to that problem uh, is the person and work of Jesus. The the Jesus who was the only clean one became unclean that we could be made clean. (laughs) Thanks be to God, amen? So what's the irony in all of this, right? I'll come back to the shadow here in a moment, but what's what's the irony of what he's trying to to say to them? They are trying to, to gain Uh, by, by comparison and by commending these practices, they're trying to gain fullness and freedom. How can I have, if I had to summarize it, maybe the question would flow like this. How can I have the fullness of what is good? And how can I be free from what is evil? How can I be free and saved and secure? How can I be free? How can I be full? Good questions. Important questions. And Paul is saying to them in verse 19, go to the source, go to the head. And here the head is Christ. Let me read again the the verse. And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, growing with a growth that is from God. So it's saying go to the authority, go to the one who is the fount of this, this freedom and cleansing, Who is Christ. That's what's radical. That's where freedom happens. We need to remember. Hold fast to that, he says. We need to remember also these powerful metaphors, he would say, concerning Christ. The metaphors are that we died with Christ to the old way, verse 20. And then at the opening of the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, but you've been raised with Christ. That's a metaphor, at least for now the reality of which we won't see until he returns. But, but we have already, you know, have, we have resurrection power in our lives. Now, you, you may not be tempted, right, to say, well, I, I haven't been tempted to observe special Sabbaths or dietary laws uh, according to these traditions. I, I don't even know what he's talking about here. So this text seems largely uh, irrelevant to me. I, it hasn't even crossed my mind. But today, we are still susceptible to these things. There are false teachings and false teachers that abound. Where are they? All over the place. And yet, things like legalism, they don't show up and say, well, let me just put on a, a, a badge and uh, and then a big banner and make it very obvious and clear that I'm a legalist. Legalism is a religious activity that's really just a dressed-up form of worldliness. It's a a self-made religion. It goes all the way back to the garden and in our parents and the lies that they told and believed. It's Legalism, it relies upon self. It's incompatible with the gospel. It is incompatible with the free grace of what Christ has purchased for us and paid for. It's useless also, by the way, to bring about change in our lives. The change that pleases God, the fruit. C.S. Lewis, in uh, his famous work, the Screwtape Letters, uh, talks about these you know, these demons. And when uh, and one of the demons is writing to his, uh, to his, his, his nephew, I believe it is, and he's, he's explaining, this is how you need to go and tempt you demon working about subtly behind the scenes. How do you draw people in and how do you distract even uh, Christians or people who name themselves as disciples of Jesus, what well, what would you do? Well, let's let's be subtle. He suggests in a number of ways, and he writes to him. His name's Warmwood. My dear Warmwood, the real trouble about the set of your patient, the person that he's trying to allure away, the Christian, is that they're living by merely Christian ways. They ha- they all have individual interest, of course, but the bond remains just mere Christianity. What we want this demon is commending, is if men will become Christian at all, is to keep them in a state of mind that I call Christianity and, quote. You know, Christianity and the crisis, Christianity and the new psychology, Christianity and the new order, Christianity and faith healing, Christianity and psycho uh, research Christianity and vegetarianism, Christianity and spelling reform. If they must be Christians, let them be be, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion of Christian coloring. That was written 80 years ago. More than 80 years ago. And there is nothing new under the sun. We have tons of people, even popular Christian authors, teachers, public They're streaming in, and you don't have to look very far to find them. Some of them dabble, some of them distract, some of them just drive full headlong people into this sort of deception. They say say things like, Jesus is good. But let's get into the real project, right? What's your real project? I mean, if Paul's going to talk here about severity against the body, well, we got to get serious. And I need to tell you today the seven easy steps to having a happy marriage. How do you get your... The real project is this. The real project is self-improvement. You're not. You, nobody wants any self-improvement here, do they? Of course you do. And marketers all around the country are selling this, and some of them will even baptize it under the name of Christianity and Jesus. You need to get on with self-discovery and self-improvement. If you hear lots of messages with that type of theme about how to have a happy family and sprinkle a little Jesus on top, then you're in that zone. One of my professors, St. Clair Ferguson, speaking of questions that you should ask when you come across a teacher that's... or a movement or a ministry that you think... or certainly uh, just a blatant secular message that just doesn't quite smell right. Right? What should you ask? The ones that would be a threat to the simple gospel and the sufficiency of Christ. Questions like: who's big here? Who who? Verse 18, to, to follow our text, who's who's puffed up? Who's getting the glory? Who's getting the attention? Who's calling for the money? Is someone's name being built up? Or is the body of Christ being built up? The local church of Christ. What other questions could you ask? You should ask this question. It's a little harder to distinguish, Ferguson says. But what is he or what is this teaching not saying? Okay. So in other words, they're getting lots of cool principles together about Jesus, maybe in relationships, Jesus and parenting, Jesus and positive thinking. But it misses the most important It doesn't matter if it has 99 of those things, all of which might be biblical principles baptized with sayings of Jesus, but if it doesn't get to the main thing, the real problem problem is we're not the solution, we're the problem. And the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And what needs to take place is that Jesus comes in as a Redeemer to save us uh, uniquely because only He can save us and satisfy us. If that's not the main, if that doesn't end up coming into focus, then you're into something that is not good. It is obscuring the gospel. I'm a little fired up about this, in case you couldn't figure it out. But I watched the I watched a video. Uh, Chris and I uh, watched while we were away on vacation. We watched this video. I know some of you already watched it because you've committed to me many a time. And the 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 documentary. It's a movie that was made, I think, five years ago, six years ago, called The American Gospel. It's raining this afternoon. I, I don't need to forecast that. Uh, but you could go and watch on whatever streaming device you use the American gospel. It highlights the many problems. The many problems that we ourselves as Americans living in this context and this time and this culture with all of our affluence and all of our ideas about health and wealth. The, the sad thing is, is that we have exported that to other places in the world. We've we've drank that Kool-Aid and then we went and put it on sale and sent it out to the world. It's often the word of faith preachers. There's one young man who talked about having been influenced by one of these word of faith preachers for many years. And he talked about how they they would talk about Uh, You know, Jesus' will for your life is to grab hold of these financial principles. Of course, the first is give, 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 give. And then you're going to sow a seed and you're going to make lots of money. And in fact, it's Jesus' will for you to be wealthy. This young man went to the ATM one day and he got out the, the bank statement and it said zero. And he said, I was convinced that I need in the name of Jesus to rebuke that poverty. Now that sounds really outlandish and indeed it should sound that way. Just like the minivan smell. That, that is a convoluted gospel. He was so confused. Why is this all so dangerous that he, Paul, and we are now needing to be reminded? One of the reasons is because they speak of Jesus. It all seems right. Verse 23, let's look at our text again. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. How do you tell the counterfeit? This kind of goes into the irony. The irony here is how they claim to have the fullness of the teaching in their pride, and yet they reveal the emptiness of their teaching. And that's in the latter part of this verse. Look at verse 23, the second half. But, so they, 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 they have an appearance of wisdom, promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh the irony is let's add more rules and regulations and here's the irony it doesn't work it doesn't work do you want freedom do you want the fullness You cannot set up enough boundaries and implement enough disciplines and philosophies and special methodologies and practices to change your sarks. What is the sarks? That's the word that Paul employs. It's the very last word there in verse 23. It doesn't stop the indulgence of the sarks, the flesh, not referring to the material flesh, physicality of your bodies and mind. That's not a bad thing. The human body's not. It's referring to the corrupt desires and cravings of the human heart. It doesn't restrain the heart, it doesn't fix the heart. Our old nature, the heart that we still struggle with when we want to question God's goodness and Christ's all sufficiency. Now, don't be mistaken. Uh, this is commending to us Christian liberty, right? When someone says, oh, that's, you can't do that. You're not a Christian. And I want to say to them, well, you show me where that is in the Bible. You, you show me where in the Bible it says. Now, I'm not talking about by way of some fifth degree inference. I'm saying, where does it say with clarity that this is a, this is a responsibility? There is space and there is a place, as we should totally acknowledge, for Christian liberty, Differences of opinion even. But Christian liberty is never to be employed as a license to do whatever we want to do. I'm not going to be judged by anybody. I'm going to do whatever I want at any time under any circumstance. No, 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 no. If you read the rest of Colossians, the next two, the last chapters, we're all going to see where he does come to us things that we should do in response to what Christ has done. But, Paul picks up very clearly, at best, the things that we are doing, at best, it's only a mere shadow. At worst, it's an obstacle or an obstruction that steals attention and glory against and away from Christ. Now, what is then the substance, right? What is clearly the substance that Paul wants us to see? If he, in case you haven't noticed, Jesus is a really big theme in this letter. And what does he say in verse 17? These are the shadow and the things to come, but he is the substance. That is, the substance belongs to Christ Jesus. If you were off at war, past or present, deployed far, far away from beloved, uh, loved ones, you would naturally want to have a picture of them, or you would want to to take video or have FaceTime with them. But if you came home, it would be weird to talk to people in your own house via FaceTime. Okay, it's happened in our house. Uh, you know, maybe there's some teenagers secluded somewhere. We do have to text and FaceTime. But you get the point, right? If you came home from war and you said, let's have our regular routine and let's FaceTime at 7, you'd be like, why would we do that? We, we, we can sit together at the table or on the couch and have that conversation face to face Folks, the things here he's saying, why would you want to return to this old way when the real thing is here? Jesus plus nothing. We have the real thing. We have real power. We have real hope for change in Christ. Jesus plus nothing, right? Because that's what he's saying. The problem, going back to the C.S. Lewis quote to, uh, to Scrutate, Dear Warmwood, the problem is the Christians you're trying to tempt, they're real big into just simple Jesus. And that's a problem. We need to make it Jesus plus something, okay? So we can distract them and we can rob them of power and joy and freedom and fullness. What is it? Well, it's not, no, that's Jesus what? It's not Jesus plus material wealth, it's not Jesus plus I need to be a missionary or Jesus plus the prayer of Jabez. Not Jesus plus this special pilgrimage or Jesus plus money or Jesus plus these educational and, and uh, parenting philosophies or Jesus plus my political agenda, which is so intertwined with the kingdom of God, or Jesus plus my workout regimen or Jesus plus my Enneagram or Jesus plus my gut health. Did I leave anybody out? Are you feeling left out? What is is your Jesus plus something? Everybody has them. We all have them. Jesus plus this and that. You'll be satisfied. You'll be the envy of all the other people in the comparison game if you follow this regiment. There is another place I want to show us the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. I've already talked about the dietary laws, but another one is the priesthood. Priesthood was an office and an institution that was established as very important and instrumental. But it was a shadow and the, the duties that they carried on around the temple were a shadow that pointed God's people, pointed us to the great high priest. Who if you go and read Hebrews 10, I've already, sorry I've already got your assignment for the afternoon, read Hebrews 10, go watch the American gospel. Uh, Hebrews 10 is going to show you a priest who has fulfilled everything and who is now interceding for us, who has now uh, become that one mediator we need between us and a holy God. Follow Christ and ask questions of His sufficiency and understand it more richly. If you go to an earthly priest to confess or to learn how you're to atone for your sins this day, you are in error. You are adding and therefore, you are ironically subtracting from the person and work of Jesus. The substance, the reality. What is it? What is the, What is? We already saw the shadows. What's the substance? The substance is, we'll go back to earlier in chapter 2. Look at verse 3. Look at the end of verse 2 when he says that we have God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom, verse 3, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I touched upon that two weeks ago. Understand that the, the mystery of God. The mystery of God, which is a great wealth and treasure to us, not in a material way, not in a successful way. The mystery of God is not some unintelligible thing that only the few and the elite and the select and the secret guy on TV who says, if you sow this seed, we'll give you this. It's knowing and loving the purposes of God in Christ. The treasures of wisdom and knowledge are not hidden under some lock and key that we need to access. No, it's, it's here. It's accessible to them and to us in Christ. Again, it's the deep conviction in the knowledge that prevents them and us from being deceived. I, I tell you, Paul says in verse 4, that no one may deceive you from fine-sounding arguments. What do you do to avoid and detect counterfeits and these self-made religions or Christianity with a self-made religion baked or cooked on top? Well, I return again to this analogy of a fine-tuned choir or instrument, a a band, a a symphony. Whether an instrument is in tune or or is not, more or less is in correspondence to the environment, the, the climate, and the humidity around it. We too need the right environment. We need those, those clear, simple voices. There's no question that God matures and, and feeds the fullness to His people through the community of the body of Christ under Him, His head. That He is appointed in the context of our community or wherever you attend worship, the means of grace, the preaching of His Word, the celebration of the sacrament, fellowship, prayer. The Apostle Paul is constantly calling people back to these ordinary means of grace. Not ordinary in the bland way, but ordinary in the predictable, safe, secure, wise, trusted way. You can avoid them in the Christian life, but not if you hope to grow in grace and be shaped by God. So don't neglect them. These are the pathways that Christ gets exalted, not the practice of these things, right? You know, baptism, for instance, as a sacrament is not something we do for God. When we come to the Lord's table here in a moment, we're not saying, God, I know you're smiling on me because of what I'm doing and how I'm feeling and all the words I'm saying. No. He's delighting in you and me because of what Christ has done. We're not celebrating or trying to do something for God. We're acknowledging what God has already done for us. If you are united to Christ, in repentance and faith, if you have the, the rebirth that happens, I want to tell you right now, Contrary to all the things that would make you restless and discontent and compare you to other people and maybe even make you think high of self or low of self or low of God or, or less of God's goodness. I want to tell you that if you are in Christ, there is nothing you can do to make God love you more or less. Past, present or future. Nothing. Well, let's celebrate that. Let me pray and then we'll come to the table. Father, thank you for Christ. We confess that he alone is, and you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are the one worthy of the glory. May the radiance of your grace and beauty shine brighter and clearer than anything or anyone. Would you forgive us that we've not lived in this light? Uh, We've been allergic to pain and, and suffering. We love to look at ourselves and boast Lord, would you enable us, even as a people, as a congregation, to be a people of surrender to you, to humility, to faith, boasting in Christ. I pray today for people who feel overwhelmed, uh, discouraged, ashamed because they're looking in the mirror and not looking at Christ. Lord, I pray you be with those uh, who are traveling, uh, some who are away at, at camp and there's others that are struggling with family and conflict and illness with work. I pray you'd be with young people in our church that they might have discernment to trust Christ as Lord. Would you protect marriages in our church? Protect the children, our little sheep. And guide us, all of us, through hardship. Keep us close through, close to you even as we survive the blessings and not exalt them. Make us, Lord, a salt and a light to people around us, ambassadors, witnesses for Christ, the all-sufficient one in whose name we pray. Even now, as he taught his disciples, praying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.